Coffee at the Cottage. Here we go with another installment of this wonderful podcast. And don't forget to go back and listen to all of the previous episodes as well of Coffee at the Cottage, uh, discussing uh, discussing and meeting a lot of people to help make uh, living in western Wisconsin, Dunn County, Menominee, a wonderful place. Scott with you. Of course, Emily will lead the conversation in a moment. And, and, and Emily, before we, we go much further, those people that are avid listeners of this podcast know that, and by the way, you're, you're, you're just about to start season two, which is exciting. You started outside with the show, but then it got cold. We had to go back inside here at the, at the cottage. And now as the weather warms back up, we're back outside again, looking at the beautiful tranquil water, the, the, the wildlife coming to life. It's, it's wonderful. Yes, it is. Um, I was out here yesterday kind of airing the place out. It was really, really warm and everything, and I loved it. Um, just can't wait to get the dock out and the pontoon and everything and let summer begin. Well, we'll have uh, a lot of the upcoming episodes. We'll be back outside. And if somebody's listening to this and it's months from now and it's cold again, just remember it always warms back up. So hopefully all this talk of warm weather getting you excited. Uh, you're going to be talking to an intriguing guest, by the way, uh, somebody that uh, it, it, it's a prime example of sometimes people really don't know who is living in the community in a good way and what they have uh, accomplished. So I'll turn it over uh, Turn it over to you. I am so excited about this guest, Alan Burgle. He, I think he could make a living giving inspiration um, speeches. I read a lot about him. Um, to be really honest, I didn't even know what a forger was up until a, oh, maybe six, eight months ago when my niece, Liz LeBanc and her husband Craig took lessons and they do it all the time now. So now I have this world-renowned forager as my guest and I've done a lot of studying about it. But before we get into the foraging, this man is amazing. The struggles that he's gone through, um, and came out on top. I, I really want people to know the man. So, Alan, take it away. Well, where should I start? How did you start foraging? Well, I was working in restaurants. I worked in restaurants for many years, about 15 years, in the Twin Cities and western Minnesota, where I'm from. I'm from Wilmer, Minnesota. And I first really loved Italian food and then I really loved French food. I worked for a number of different Italian chefs. Uh, eventually I got into farm-to-table restaurants and when I got to farm-to-table restaurants well I was at this place called Heartland. The menu would change every single day and we only used products from within 200 miles of Minnesota and I would write the menu with the other cooks on the line every day. We'd walk into the cooler, see what's in there and put the menu together. Very Chez Panisse we would see things that I had never cooked with before come into the restaurant. I'd, I thought I knew how to cook everything. And then nettles would come in. I didn't know how to take the sting out of nettles. I knew that they were edible, but I'd never worked with them before. How do you? Uh, well, that's a, there's a number we'll of different ways. Yeah, that. there's yeah. a number of different ways, and, and I'll get off track okay. if I go down that rabbit hole. Okay, thank uh, you. I also saw that these ingredients were 
more expensive than a lot of the cultivated ones that we bring in. Nettles will retail for about $10 a pound. These are the same, you know, stinging, burning weeds that grow outside in people's yards. That's more than most types of heirloom lettuce that we would purchase. Wild mushrooms will range from 10 to 50 to $60 a pound for morels at peak season. That those are valuable things. So I, I saw I was introduced to these things in a very nice restaurant. We were nominated for the James Beard like six years in a row, uh, or my boss was rather. So I knew these things as luxury ingredients uh, where a lot of people will see they may know them as just weeds in their yard. So the way that I was introduced to them was was different. The way I was taught to appreciate these things was very different. And I was also spoon fed these things and I was shown what they are. Like here's I got to see this cavalcade of different mushrooms of colors and flavors and textures all throughout the year. And it basically taught me what was in the area before I had ever gone outside to look for mushrooms. And then I'd already cooked them, touched them, put them on a menu, tasted them, you know, I'd interacted them with them in a way that I basically already knew all of the best species of mushrooms because I started with mushrooms first. And then one day, as the story goes, I was out playing disc golf and I saw a chicken of the woods mushroom, this bright orange mushroom growing on a log that was on this bridge. And I just cleaned one and put it on the menu in the restaurant the day before and a light went on and I understood like this isn't something that's you know unattainable it's more about timing and rain and then I bought myself every piece of literature I could on mushrooms and would study in my spare time what I had as a a line cook uh, after I'd get off work and then I would go pick the mushrooms that I knew that were safe common species and I'd bring them into the restaurant and often put them on the menu the same day that I brought them in from my morning hikes and sometimes you go out and you don't find mushrooms so then I wanted to know what the plants were everything just looked like a big wall of green all the plants looked the same well slowly but surely that I like a magic eye painting I I, I like to say things would pop out and the more I researched the more I learned And the more friends I made in the wild food community, people like my mentor and close friend Sam Thayer uh, helped me learn more about plants. So then I started to work more with plants. Eventually, I supplied my own restaurants. Uh, I was the executive chef of the Salt Cellar in St. Paul and then of Lucia's Restaurant. And I would supply those restaurants with, with things that I would harvest. And then before that, while I was living in my friend's basement, I had to give I had to give up my apartment to be able to work at Heartland and take like a two dollar pay cut. Uh, I had to basement hop for a few years, and one of my my friend who was also my landlord, I'd cook him breakfast as kind of a way to say thanks for letting me squat in your basement, and I would cook him things that I was picking, you know, mushrooms we would pick and things like that in the morning, and he said this is so cool, we should start you a website. So I was like, okay, we'll start the website, and then it's going to be done. That was about 10 years ago this year, and I put an article out every Saturday for the past 10 years on something interesting I've been doing. It's changed a little bit over the years. And that, I I thought no one would read that at all. I I thought, I I didn't even think people could read it at at first. I I didn't understand anything about it. I'm I'm a chef by trade. I don't see myself as a professional writer. I'm a writer by necessity, photographer by necessity. Uh, then I started getting emails from 
Australia, China, Alaska, South America, like every corner of the world, people wanted to talk about wild food. I thought this is absolutely incredible. And now, you know, a few times a day, I'll probably reply to emails from all over the place about different interesting topics. So <clears throat> I want to back up a little bit, though, because I read quite a bit about you when you got Lyme's disease. And that's where the inspiration really comes in. And, and, and if you could walk us through that, sure. how, how, how that all took place and what you went through. That, that was when I was living in my friend's basement working at Heartland. And it, uh, one of the, after a couple years after I had started and I knew that ticks were dangerous but I was also young and reckless, and I'd, I went on two different trips. One on the 4th of July, I went to the Boundary Waters to try to get into the P Pagami Burn to look for black morels with my friend. And we didn't find any black morels. We didn't even get into the burn because we forgot to bring a canoe. Because we <laughs> obviously did our research and weren't blinded by morel fever at all. Yeah, <laughs> uh, go figure. But I did get a deer tick in my chest that I remember picking off and chucking. And then a few, like a week later, I started to feel really bad. And I went into the Minute Clinic, and keep in mind that I don't have any insurance. Mm -hmm. You know, I make nothing. I'm making nothing as a line cook. So that was a big stretch for me, but I knew that something was very wrong. So I went in. They said that everything was fine. They sent me home. And then, like, about two days later, the rashes showed up, and I was like, oh, my God, I have Lyme disease. You know, the rashes all over my body, the big ovals, not bullseyes. And then a few days after that, I went back in to just the Minute Clinic, and they uh, – Oh, the, oh, this was uh, I was I was cooking at the restaurant, and I just I had to leave. I felt so bad, and they gave me some drugs, and then I went back to work and cooked, uh, played at a party of sixty, and then I had to go back in, and then they gave me the doxycycline uh, because my I woke up and basically like half my body was like paralyzed, and I got the Bell's palsy, so my my eye sunk back into my head. I had to cook with earplugs in uh, on the left side. Everything on the left side of my body was affected, uh, like my motor skills. Uh, the cognitive impairment was really intense, uh, I, and I couldn't talk right. It messed with my speech. Uh, so chef called me Chef Mushmouth. <laughs> I, had to, I had to cook with an eye patch on the line. He called. He called me the pirate and the new salad girl. They put me on salads. I was on the. I was in the most prestigious station in the restaurant which was chef's old station uh which is saute so i would have like 13 14 different things that i make that are on the menu that i will change every day you know, that's hard to do when you're like feel like you've been hit by a freight train so i was on salads for a while and it was a little embarrassing but the doxycycline kicked in thankfully it did not get into my spine i remember laying on a hospital bed and they said we need to give you a spinal tap and i said how much will it cost? And they said, it'll be about seven to $10,000. And I, I walked out of the hospital. I said, I can't do that. And I, uh, it's a shame that I had to do that, you know, with our healthcare system. I should be able to get the help that I need. And luckily it didn't get into my spine. 
but it took about six or seven months for the symptoms to to dissipate and it's very slow uh the the brain fog and like the depression that came with it were very intense it was it was really rough and especially not having any health insurance now i have a debt burden when i also have a you know student loan burdens it was rough but you came out of it you came out of it with great success I, and I, and did. I think, yeah, the message is, is no matter what happens, you, if you stick to it and, you'll, you know, you can be successful. Yeah, I didn't want to let it stop me because going outside and hiking before work was something that was free for a broke line cook is something that it could teach me things. And it's, you know, forging's like a giant Easter egg hunt. People like to find things for free that are very valuable, rare, exciting, delicious. You know, those things are all very exciting. And, and it didn't cost me anything, so I didn't want to give that up. So, you know, I, I, eventually, I essentially became kind of like a Lyme disease prevention advocate, not something that I would have ever thought that I would be. But I started treating my clothes with permethrin, which is what the DNR uses, and that was the only thing that made me feel comfortable enough to go outside and knock on wood. I've, I mean, I've probably seen just a handful of ticks that probably crawled on me from a dog in all of the years since. And that was probably yeah. about eight and a half years ago. Good for you. Now, you mentioned that you had two taste awards. What are they? What is that? Uh, taste awards given to culinary media so that was for my show that's on apple tv called field forest feast and that was a project that we started in the pandemic once the pandemic hit and everything shut down uh like we were talking about before we started recording i was looking at a year with like no income i had all these consulting contracts and i lost all of them and i got an email out of the blue from a video producer named jesse wrestler and he said, basically, what do you think about this idea? I you know, love your work. I think we should make a show about foraging during the pandemic that could encourage people to get outside. And, you know, I, I didn't have anything going on at the time. So I said, awesome, you know, let's do it. And I'd done a, a number of things like that before. I did a TV pilot. My first one was with a, a, a Vietnam vet who trained SEAL Team 6. Like wow. you have the pictures of the guys that took down Osama bin Laden w in, in his little uh, compound in northern Florida. And he hunts squirrels with a slingshot and can take deer and turkeys with a slingshot because he does headshots. It's like shooting a silent bullet. So we did we they flew oh me down there goodness. when I was like 25 and we did we did a TV pilot that didn't go anywhere. And then oh, I did another one. But if somebody wanted to see that. Oh, where it never went anywhere. Oh, yeah. okay. Because that sounds really interesting. And I did another TV pilot with the photographer of uh, uh, my chef's book that kind of didn't go anywhere. But it was good practice runs. It's, I had enough experience uh, in front of the camera to be able to kind of hold my own. And Jesse really, really is so talented and writing, helping write scripts and things like that. It, I, was, I felt like I was finally ready to do something that was really, really good. And I poured everything I had into it. And we just, I say we, we bootstrapped it 
the marketing was my Facebook page and my Instagram. And we would go out and film an episode of things that I was harvesting. I'd make a few dishes. And then we had one editor who would edit things very quickly right after we were done. And then the episodes would come out basically a week after we filmed them so that when they came out, you know, and this is like at the height of lockdown, when they came out, it, this is, we're a two-man team filming. When the episodes came out, people could go outside that day, collect everything that I had shown them, and make exactly what was on the shows. You know, Amazing. we wanted to encourage people to go outside during a time of, you know, so much uncertainty and weirdness. Sure. And and show people, you know, how, how wild food and being outside has been good for me. Yeah. And can be good for them, too, in, in so many ways. We didn't think... As we were shooting it, I, I thought this is like the coolest thing that I've ever done. This is like the most the most pure artistic expression that I've ever done. There was no input from corporate. There's no art direction. We were the art directors. You know, I felt so good. And the artists. Yes, yes. <clears throat> well, what we did, it, it was so pure and real. Just whatever we just did, whatever we wanted. Jesse filmed it however he wanted. I made the food. I made the best stuff I thought I could possibly find. And I don't think that I could ever do that show. I don't think I could do it again because it, it, there were so many things that I put into it. If we did another one, it would not be as good because we put so much into it. I started collaborating with people. Uh, I would say on Instagram, does anyone have I – I need the most perfect chicken of the woods mushroom. And then reports come in from a few hours away, and then I go and meet people on Instagram – and we filmed their chicken of the woods mushroom for the show. Oh you know, we, I, I incorporated the audience into everything, and that was an interesting dynamic oh, that, absolutely. I had, that I had never experienced before, and was so so rewarding. I knew that it was good when we did it, and then we Jesse had already won a James Beard for his first feature film, The Starfish Throwers. So I knew that I the work was in really really good hands. Nothing really happened. Uh, but then a few years later, last year, we got the James Beard nomination in the spring and somehow brought it home. And I was I was shocked. It was the it was the only thing that I had ever wanted in my career. And I thought after my last restaurant closed that it was something that would never be available to me. I'll never get a Michelin star now. I'll never be able to get a James Beard. And what voila, tell here me we are. about a James Beard? What do you what is it? It's the highest culinary award that you can get in the United States. And? They give it for restaurants. Uh, they give it for chefs. There's a lot of different things. Mine was for uh, instructional media. Oh, wow. You have to be pretty proud of that. Now, where I do am. they give the awards? It's in Chicago. Oh, wow. That is amazing. Yeah. So the Taste Awards were a different thing. Yeah, but it was absolutely. Nice. Like, yeah. But any award is good. You know, um, yeah. Now you do, when I spoke with you on the phone, you told me about, one of the things that I was, I thought was kind of funny. Um, basically, I said, well, you know, could I get you to cook for me? And he said, I'm just too expensive. And I, I hope I didn't phrase it that way. 
Well, maybe that's what, you know, what people say and what people hear, you know, are different. And I just kind of laughed at He's like, you're like, um, well, people ha- fly me out to New York and San Francisco and I, I am a private cook for them. And these are my words. And I'm like, oh, my God, that is amazing huh? uh, that, I mean, I've never met a chef like that before. I mean, Emerald Gazi or, uh, you know what I mean? Um, so tell me about how that all happens. Yeah, and catering is not something that I do a lot of. The labor that goes into what I do is, is this so much labor that, you know, nettles may be free. But my labor is the part that's very, very expensive. So I have to take into account all of my labor. Uh, you know, for a me- for the big meal that I do, which is the Wild Harvest Festival, where, like I said, I cook 800 meals in 36 hours for about 200 people. That will take me... Last week, I, I put everything together. It takes me about three solid weeks of labor to put that together. This it's an insane amount of work. So you're not using a can opener. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I, I have a 50 cubic foot freezer and a 40 cubic foot fridge in my garage. Wow. Yeah. And the the other thing is that the food that I make is is extreme in, in many ways. A lot of a lot of times I've done dinners. I mean, even for you know like airplane executives and things like that it if they don't understand where the food is from and the purpose behind it they they will not understand so i also need to basically i interviewed the people who would like me to cook for them (laughs) and i have to make the decision you know is will you understand what i'm bringing to the table here i can't even that's even that's a bigger thing begin to understand like all um i don't i don't even understand i appreciate what you do and i think it's amazing it's a you know it's an art it's you're an amazing creative person but now if i wanted to have a party of 10 how long would you have to cook uh, and considering it, it's, minimum it's multi- wage, it's multiple, <laughs> it's multiple days. Wow. Yeah, m- multiple days of labor because people think when you're cooking, like you're going to someone's house and cooking dinner, you're cooking at their house. This is not how it works no. in a restaurant. It's not how I operate uh, because aside from a few things, like maybe I'm finishing some meat or something like that, I need to have control over the taste, the texture, everything. I need to know what is happening in someone's mouth as they eat a bite of food. The control, I need to retain the control. The way that I do that is everything is prepped beforehand. Sure. Basically, what I do when I go and cook somewhere, I'm essentially reheating things. Sure. That I know taste perfect. This is exactly what happens in a restaurant, right? Yes. So everything, all the labor is done beforehand, and the execution is basically like, okay, now we reheat a few things. Okay, that tastes very good. Great. Do you talk when you're serving this? I'm assuming that you're serving it. It's basically half dinner and half show. Yeah. I want to do it. (laughs) 
I seriously do. We'll, we'll, we'll have to talk. We later. will talk. I am so impressed with this process. Yeah, at my at my restaurants, this and I, I all of these a lot of these experiences, you know, have contributed to to how I, I work. At my first restaurant, I quickly saw that a lot of these things on the menu, the servers were not as articulate as I would like them to be. The information was not retained. So I took matters into my own hands, and I hired an additional sous chef, and I did not run the pass. I did not run the expo station. I walked the dining room and ran food almost every single night. See, and, and I, I think that is so smart. And I would explain to them, the salad you know, is made from you know, 15 different things. I picked them all this morning. Here's all the different things in there. And to hear it from the person that has done it, you know, it is the impact. I saw the impact immediately. Oh, and yeah. And the server saw it in their tips. So they loved when I would come around. You know, it was like Midas. Uh, <laughs> great for the servers. But interacting with the guests really was the start of, uh, you know, now some of the teaching that I will do because I saw, okay, when I interact with people, and when my nerdiness and passion and enthusiasm comes out, everything is an easy sell. And people understand things much better. And the impact. Uh, the appreciation. I, I, yeah, I used to explain to the servers, like, there's like a like a, a scale of enjoyment. Like, you can get to like a 9 or a 10 with the servers. When, when I come out there, we're able to, like, break the ceiling. And the excitement and uh, enjoyment that guests had... I'd never seen anything like it. Amazing. Amazing. I love that. So we will definitely chat about that. Having, you know, some people have people over for dinner and hiring you. We'll see. Next topic. Yes. Um, so we've already gotten the countdown. Um Flora, you yes. wrote a book. Yes. So Flora is, it's the first in a three-part series. Yes. When I was at Heartland, I ran the tasting menus. Uh, well, the the first uh, couple different courses of them, the entrees especially, which are, you know, the, the, the largest component. And they were called Flora and Fauna. We had a meat tasting menu mm, and then a the vegetarian fauna. tasting okay. menu. Sure. Originally, after Lucia's closed, I was just heartbroken. I had started to write the outline of a book and form it in my head. And after the restaurant closed, I said, well, I can't just rest on my laurels. I don't want to go back to a restaurant. Let's write the book proposal. Let's get it sold. And that's what I'm going to do now. So i started talking to publishers i i knew that chelsea green is basically they're the leader in the foraging and the green food space and i brought an outline to them eventually i took that outline and as i started writing the book they accepted it and i built it as a ended up billing it as a three-part series afterward so there's flora and then the second one will be fungi and then fauna so named after the tasting menus at Heartland with the addition of the mushrooms. But I had to take my first uh, manuscript and just get rid of the whole thing. And I had to start from, I started from scratch. I could have just taken 
you know, I had hundreds of recipes in my files that I'd made and tested in the restaurants that I put on menus that were so good. But all those recipes are restaurant scale, and every single one will need to be retested. You cannot just take math. Some things don't scale correctly. Salt, for example, that's a very important component, and you mm -hmm. can't just multiply that or just divide that. It needs to be, it needs to be exact. So all these things have to be tested for a home kitchen. I started looking at that, and I was like, I might as well just start over. And another thing I say about myself is that I hate everything I've ever cooked except for what I'm cooking right now. Really? Perpetually. That's interesting. Dis displeased. Yep. So yep. I. I rarely ever make the same thing twice. Uh, I lost a few job interviews from saying that in, in my early days. <laughs> I have to tell you, this has been so interesting. And I absolutely love you, Alan. Um, and if I kiss up, maybe you'll give me a bar bargain. But more th importantly, I got to tell you, you remind me of my nephew, Tim Spielman. He lives in Germany. And he is like the love of my life, Tim Spielman. <laughs> so what do you have to say finally? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Would you come back after after we have our dinner? Uh, that's a loaded question. It's not loaded to me. <laughs> I think my final thoughts are I'm really excited for spring and I'm excited to go home and uh, eat all the wild leeks that are in my car. Oh, I brought something for you to smell, a little show and tell. I, ha I had some other things and I forgot them, along with a copy of my book that I'll bring you. Oh, this thank is, you. Uh, yeah, oh, my God, thank you. This is, Autographed. This is, uh, of course, this is Blophilia hirsuta, and it is one of our one of the first plants that will come up in the spring. And what you can see, it's a mint, right? So you can see... Do you see the purple you need to on take the leaves? I'll send you a stock image. You don't want to take pictures of these. Oh. Or they've been in my pocket. But you see the purple. Ew. The purple is like the plants. <laughs> it's their natural defense against freezing. Can I pick it up? Oh, of course. What would I do with this? Oh, my God. What does it make you think of? It makes me think of ice cream, tea. I used to puree this and make mint, green mint ice cream with no food coloring and shaved chocolate. It was good. I call it toothpaste plant. That's what it reminds me of is toothpaste. But it's like a peppermint. It's not it's a peppermint flavor. It's yes. not like a spearmint flavor. No. Very intense and much better suited to uh to sweet things. I had, when I supplied restaurants with some products, they would try to use this them in, is amazing. Like, in savory applications and you do not want to make pesto with this. If you put it's like putting toothpaste in your pesto. Oh. Like, that's not good. But we make pesto. I love pesto. Just an example of one of my favorite spring plants, and, and, and an what aroma is it that called most now? it's called a uh, tall, tall wood mint, maybe hairy wood mint. So now I can do I can make tea with this. Yes, or a flavor tea. Whoops! You just pour some hot water over it and put some honey in it, and that's your tea. I'm going to do that. Yeah, give them a wash first. They grow very low to the ground. Okay. So, I really appreciate that. That is. Isn't that fun? It is fun. We need to get to know each other better. <laughs> we will be besties. Um, thank you again for being here. Um, and I can't wait to talk to you after we're record done recording. Great. No, thanks for having me.
and if the people are curious about my work, the my, my book is called The Forager Chef's Book of Flora, and you can find that anywhere good books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and I have a list of indie producers as well. Then my what? website is mm -hmm. foragerchef.com, and that is a large compendium of, you know, instructional tutorials and recipes people can make with seasonal foods around them. My show is Field Forest Feast, and that's on Apple TV. If you want to see me survive in the wilderness for the better part of a week without food, water, or shelter while oh, foraging wow. for an Iron Chef-style competition at the end, that's on Hulu on uh, Chefs vs. Wild. And I'm also pretty active on Instagram at Forager Chef, where a lot of people get a hold of me on there. That's about it. Thank you very much.